Give you a little elbow room now, huh? Hey, we had uh, uh, quite a few people come yesterday and, and uh, for a cleanup day here at the church. So I want to thank uh, those of you that uh, if you feel yourself a little slippery in your pews, all the wood was uh, shined up yesterday. So um, I really appreciate all the folks that came and did that. Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 12, page 678, if you're using the pew Bibles. Matthew 12, we're going to be in verses 46 through 50. Matthew 12, starting in verse 46, says this, While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brother stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, Your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. Isn't it funny how redundant the Bible is sometimes? Didn't they just say that? He replied to him, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Well, one of the things that we see when we look at the life and the words of Jesus is that he was in the business of constantly redefining things for people or as we would say here at Wellspring, he was constantly um, creating uh, new normals for people's understanding of different uh, principles and concepts. See, Jesus lived in an age and a culture where family bonds were extremely tight. Um, your, your family, your nuclear family was, was first and foremost uh, in importance in your life, second to God, obviously. Um, but also your extended family was extremely important. He lived in a time where there were arranged marriages, where, where families would really unite as their, their children would marry. He lived in a time where divorce was pretty much unheard of and the punishment for adultery was being stoned to death. And so in the midst of that culture, which still exists in a lot of parts of our world today, Jesus enters in and he, and he kind of does some redefining. And he says this, he says that our fellow believers, those are your true brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers. And he says that those bonds that you share, those ties that you share as fellow believers, those are deeper because of our, our shared uh, destiny and our shared faith. Now, on the surface, Jesus' kind of redefinition of what family is might not be much of a stretch for some of us. I know a lot of people uh, who have you know, come to Christ and as they've grown and developed in their faith, their friendships with their Christian friends really are more deep and meaningful than their family relationships for various reasons. Um, when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, I had two family shows that I really loved to watch. One was Happy Days, and every once in a while you can catch it on, on uh, PBS reruns, kind of an odd place to find it, but uh, Happy Days, and then The Cosby Show, of course, in the 80s, and um, what I loved about those two families was that, I mean, obviously you had uh, two parents that were still together um, that obviously loved each other. Um, you could tell that, you know, Mr. and Mrs. C, you know, would always kiss each other on happy days. And, and what I loved about the show was that they would sit down with their kids and, and talk with them about their problems, especially as they were teenagers and really dealing with some different things. They would really sit down and try to communicate with them. And, and a lot of times those conversations were, were filled with a lot of grace, but also truth. They said some hard things to their kids at times. But the whole time, there was also just kind of this, this sense of humor that went along with it that made it really appealing. Now, 
The problem was is that my family didn't look anything like uh, Happy Days or The Cosby Show. I don't know how many of your families looked like that. Um, but I grew up in, in a divorce family and, and a few different step-parents. Um, I had step-siblings, half-siblings that I hardly spent any time with. And my extended family, I really rarely saw. So when I came to Christ in high school, my picture of family was really kind of a blank slate. Um, and really most of the images that I had of family were, were pretty much just kind of broken images of, of what I don't really think it was supposed to be or to look like. I knew that there were some, some things that were different. So I don't know which uh, one of those pictures you align with more, uh, the Cosby show or a happy days upbringing or maybe a little bit more like mine. Um, but a lot of you guys are really aware of the statistics of the American family in our culture today. You guys know that for a long time now, um, you know, 50% of marriages are ending in divorce. Um, you know as well um, that even the, probably the greater trend is that fewer and fewer people are actually just even getting married. They're saying, well, if it's going to end in divorce, I'm just not even going to bother. What you might not know is that now today, seven out of 10 children in America grow up in what we would call um, non-traditional families, which means um, their parents are divorced or their parents never got married or they have a you know, yeah, single mom situation or they live with their grandparents or they live with somebody else's family. So just out of curiosity, I'm wondering how many of you in here grew up in what we would define or somebody would define as a traditional family, which means you had you know, the same parents, your biological parents, all the way through the end of high school. Let's just cut it off there. How many of you grew up in what would be called a traditional family? Okay. How many of you grew up in what we would say would be a non-traditional, which means something other than that? Show of hands. Okay. Man, St. Joe, you guys are, we're, we're beating the odds here. You guys have had some pretty good experiences at least. But sometimes, you know what? You can have two parents and it can still be pretty dysfunctional. Maybe some of you <laughs> experienced that as well. <clears throat> yeah, people are like, yeah, mom, what about that? Um, you know, part of the problem, I think, for a lot of us is that with the, with the rise of divorce, with the fact that in our culture, you know, definitely over the last 30, 40 years, um, in America, we're a lot more mobile. People are moving from town to town a lot more than they used to. Um, and then also just the onset of technology, the number of people that spend so many hours in front of a television or in front of a computer screen that where they don't really sit down and engage with one another has really done a lot to kind of taint people's view and experience of, of even the tightness of what a biological family is supposed to look like. And so then we come... Uh, you know, some of you grew up in the church. Some of us came to Christ a little, you know, later on a little bit. And then we come to church and they tell us that we're supposed to be a family. And, and we're, we're wondering, well, what does that mean exactly? Because I've seen what is supposed to be my family over here. And that doesn't really seem that uh, functional. And so how can I then take that experience and then now become over here and be a family with, with church? It's kind of a foreign concept to a lot of us. And so Jesus is asking us today to kind of reimagine what family could look like. Now, when people are going church shopping, and maybe some of you have been church shopping at different times in your life, what are people generally looking for? Just throw out some things that if people, when you go church shopping or you hear other people are church shopping, what are people generally looking for in our culture when, they, when, they do, when they're doing that? Throw out some things. Okay, certain styles of music possibly, yeah. Okay, feeling welcomed, yeah. Okay, 
what they have to offer, different programs they have to offer. Could be youth, could be adults, could be whatever, okay? Any other things? Yeah. Relevance, Relevance okay. Yeah, I want it to be relevant to my life that I live today. People like themselves, okay, yeah. Okay, different events they have. What else, yeah. Okay, that their beliefs line up. Okay, good. A well-dressed pastor, yeah. Sorry you didn't find one here, but. <clears throat> um, you know, I haven't heard very many people really articulate to me that have been church shopping. Hey, you know, what I'm really looking for is I'm really looking for a family, you know, a place that I can call home. I want to I be known and I want to know others deeply and in a deep, meaningful level. Maybe people, honestly, that's what's really laying under the surface, but I don't know how many people really could articulate that that is really what they're looking for. You see, Jesus had a vision for what his church would look like one day, and he didn't mention anything about that church having these amazing programs or an amazing speaker or an amazing worship service. Not that, you know, we take what we do here lightly. God does say, hey, use your gifts to the best of your ability. But Jesus had a much grander vision for what his body of believers would look like. I want you to turn over in your Bibles now to John chapter 17, page 751. In John chapter 17, it's kind of a famous passage. Jesus, this is the night that he was going to be arrested and put on trial. And he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Maybe you've heard of that scene where he's, he's praying fervently uh, to God about the things that are about to happen. And he's praying for some different groups of people. He starts by praying for himself because he knows his time has come. He knows it's going to be challenging. He prays for his disciples. In the final part, starting in verse 20, he prays for all believers, not just then, but the people that would come in the future. And so in verse 20, he says, my prayer is not for them alone. He'd been praying for the disciples. He says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So in that little section of verses, what two phrases did you hear repeated a couple of times? Anyone? Okay, yeah, you're in me. There's, there's several phrases. Being one. Okay, God, I pray that you would make them one. So that what? What does he say? So that the world may know, what? That you have sent me, okay? What do those two things have to do with one another? God, I pray that they would be one so that the world would know that you have sent me. What do those two things mean together? What's that? Okay, there'd be some evidence, okay? What else? Yeah, John.
okay? It's hard for people to get a, a picture of who God is because God, when you think about it, he is one. He's the Father, Son, and Spirit all in one. And so if we can't be one, we don't really give a very good image to the world of, of the picture of the, the God, the triune God who's three in one himself. What else, Will? Okay. Okay. Yeah, our oneness, our love for one another would kind of set set us apart from the world, maybe how the world operates at different times. Yeah, Jace. Okay. Yeah, yeah. As people see us unified, they see Christ unified with us as well, okay? So, um, as, I, as I read through that, one of the things I started thinking about is what would a church really look like if their goal was oneness and complete unity? A church where, where family was redefined and the people that we shared the pews with really became our brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and children instead of just mild acquaintances or maybe strangers that you've never met, even though you've been under the same roof every Sunday morning for years now. What would that vision demand of us? And how would we all benefit of being a part of a place like that? Well, our theme over the next several months, as I shared with you, is going to be life together. And it's really based off uh, the title of a book. Uh, It says, The Classic Exploration of Christian Community. It's written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was uh, a German. Um, He was uh, in Germany during the 1930s, during the rise of the Nazi party. He was a pastor and led a movement of what they called confessing churches, churches that refused to um, allow the Nazi party to have authority over them. The state church kind of abdicated to um, Hitler. And so he led this kind of resistance movement, so they kind of had to meet underground Um, He also was a part of an assassination plot against Hitler. And so for his involvement in that, he was arrested and thrown into prison. He he bounced around a few different prison camps um, and eventually was executed on April 9th, 1945, literally just hours before the Allied forces came in and liberated the camp that he was in. And so spending kind of those last years of his life apart from a consistent Christian community really shaped uh, a lot of his, um, his thoughts and really gave him a unique perspective. A lot of the things that he wrote in here were written during that time and, and kind of gathered together later and, and written into this book. Um, in a lot of ways, he said during that time, he was really more able to identify with Christ, who he said, you know, during his arrest and his beatings and his crucifixion was really abandoned and alone. Um, he said that, you know, well, I guess you can apply it to the fact that he could, he could relate to early Christian leaders during those first couple of centuries that many times were, were isolated from their community, uh, imprisoned um, at different times. Also, I think he was able to definitely identify with those in the persecuted church today around our world right now. There are people that are Christians that can't get together for fellowship and church like we're doing now for fear of, of death. So his perspective on the power of Christian fellowship took on new meaning during those difficult circumstances. I want you to turn in your Bibles now to Psalm 133. This will be the last place that we land, so you don't need to worry about holding your spot anywhere. Psalm 133, it's page 435. 
Psalm 133. We're going to look at verse 1 and the second part of verse 3. It says, How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. And the second half of verse 3 says, For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. So when brothers live together in unity, there God bestows his blessings on them. One of the opening lines in Bonhoeffer's book says this, It's not simply to be taken for granted that the Christian has the privilege of living among other Christians. I want you to think of the context in which he's writing this. He's been kind of ripped from his Christian community, put into prison, isolated. And he says it's not simply to be taken for granted that the Christian has the privilege of living among other Christians. And he goes on to describe early church leaders like Paul and John. When you read their letters in the New Testament, you know that at different times they were imprisoned. They were, they were isolated from these churches that they'd helped plant, this, this family that really meant a lot to them. And you can see it in their emotion that they're writing. They say, man, I long to see you. I, I long to share time with you. Or maybe when they're in prison, they say, I long for you to come and see me. I want to be encouraged by you. And so he talks about just um, that connection that he has with those folks. And they, they knew Paul, John, they knew what it was like to love people deeply. And then they knew what it was like to have that, that fellowship kind of ripped away from them and denied them. And this next passage I want to share with you from the book really, really tore my heart up. I think I've got a quote here. It says, it is true, of course, that what is an unspeakable gift of God for the lonely individual is easily disregarded and trodden underfoot by those who have the gift every day. It is easily forgotten that the fellowship of Christian brethren is a gift of grace, a gift of the kingdom of God that any day may be taken from us, that the time that still separates us from other loneliness may be brief indeed. Therefore, let him who until now has had the privilege of living a common Christian life with other Christians, praise God's grace from the bottom of his heart. Let him thank God on his knees and declare, it is grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brethren. Now, like a lot of things in life, when we read something like that, which is totally foreign to our context, it's really difficult for us to put ourselves in the place of those folks and to really have that kind of gratitude. But I just want you to imagine for a minute, what, how would having some measure of that perspective of Wellspring and what we have here change the way in which you approach this place and one another on Sunday mornings? Having a greater appreciation for what we have here, how would that change the way in which you approach this place and one another on Sundays? Okay, hey, you'd be really excited to see everyone. What else? Yeah, Aaron? Yeah, she said that she would, um, 
her heart would go out to people who are even in the midst of our community that, that aren't, aren't connecting well and that she would try to, to do whatever she can to make them feel a part of, of what we're doing here. Anything else come to mind? Yeah, Gary? Uh, coming early and staying late. Not, not being, um, I've attended church, mm. da-da, now I'm going off to do other things. Yeah. But to come, come early, be comfortable, come early and talk with folks and engage with folks and then not be ready to leave because it's 12 o'clock. Yeah. And it's time to go home. Yeah. Come early and stay late. Make yourself available to people. Uh, you know, visitors come early and leave early. So if you come late... Uh, you're probably not going to meet them because uh, they're going to be out the door when the service is over most of the time. So is this place about you and your agenda or about you coming to serve and love other people? That's a good point. Anything else? Yeah, Karen? Karen? Yeah, yeah. she's saying that that should be, the church should be kind of like the crown jewel of your week, the thing that's kind of the, the apex of, of your existence. But um, I think it's really sad how fickle and apathetic and downright whiny we can all be about our fellow Christians. We sit on our seat of judgment, and in our hearts we think, man, that person is just so annoying are so selfish, are so arrogant, are so needy, are so critical. And so we pick and choose the people that we engage with and who we love and care for, even inside our own church community, let alone all the people that, and the ways that we relate to people who attend other churches that might have some different viewpoints on things than we do. And I say we because I'm, I'm the same as anybody else. But I wonder if the thought has crossed our mind enough that we, that we were selfish and arrogant and annoying and critical and needy, but Jesus chose to die for us anyways. God adopted us into his family even when we were really tough to love. Because I think some Christians honestly would just as soon kind of pick and choose who they get to spend eternity with right? And they'd probably pick the people that think and act like they do, the people that don't really demand too much from them or aren't weird, right? Who wants to spend eternity with weird people? So I think doing life together really is going to require some pretty radical shifts in some of our thinking and how we see others in light of Christ, because Christian community isn't primarily about whether or not we click with others or whether or not we enjoy the same worship styles as other people. Our Christian community is based solely on what Christ has done for all of us. The Apostle Paul said that while we were still sinners, all of us, that Christ died for us. Peter wrote, Christ died once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. So when the reality of that shared need and that shared forgiveness 
until that really takes hold of our hearts, only until then can we really begin living life together as fellow sinners in ways that lead to intimacy based on what Christ has done for us and not based on our personal preferences. Bonhoeffer said it like this. He said, the more genuine and the deeper our community becomes, the more will everything else between us recede. The more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ and his work become the only thing that is vital between us. The final thing I want to share with you this morning is a hindrance to community that Bonhoeffer um, calls idealism. And it's a kind of a malady that I'm, I'm sure that all of us have been guilty of at one point or another. I want you to really hang with me because <clears throat> I'm going to read through a couple of pages from his book. But you see, it's just kind of a small book, okay? So not big pages. I think you can do it. But he has some really profound things to say that I couldn't say better than he did. So I'm just going to read his. He says, the serious Christian set down for the first time in a Christian community is likely to bring with him a very definite idea of what Christian life together should be and to try to realize it. Every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community. It must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. God hates visionary dreaming. It makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. He acts as if he is the creator of the Christian community, as if his dream binds, men's together, binds men together. When things do not go his way, he calls the effort a failure. When his ideal picture is destroyed, he sees the community going to smash. That must be a German phrase I'm not familiar with. The whole world's going to smash. Because God has already laid the only foundation of our fellowship, because God has bound us together in one body with other Christians in Jesus Christ long before we entered into common life with them, we enter into that common life not as demanders, but as thankful recipients. We thank God for what he has done for us. We thank God for giving us brethren who live by his call, by his forgiveness and his promise. We do not complain of what God does not give us. We rather thank God for what he does give us daily. And is not what has been given us enough? Brothers who will go on living with us through sin and need under the blessing of his grace? Is the divine gift of Christian fellowship anything less than this? Any day, even the most difficult and distressing day, even when sin and misunderstanding burden the communal life, is not the sinning brother still a brother with whom I too stand under the word of Christ? Will not a sin be a constant occasion for me to give thanks that both of us may live in the forgiving love of God and Jesus Christ? Thus the very hour of disillusionment with my brother becomes incomparably salutary because it so thoroughly teaches me that neither of us can ever live by our own words and deeds, but only by that one word and deed which really binds us together, the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. When the morning mist of dreams vanish, then dawns the bright day of Christian fellowship. Jesus is redefining family for all of us. So if you call Wellspring home, I want you to take a look around at your brothers and sisters 
and mothers and fathers and children? Would you begin to love them and to really engage with them and to get to know their story like you might your own flesh and blood or maybe even treat them better than you do your family? You see, his prayer is that we would be one, that we would be brought together in complete unity because of our common standing. Sinners saved by the undeserved grace and forgiveness offered to us in Jesus Christ, called to live in St. Joseph, Missouri, called to worship at Wellspring Community Church, and called to a greater community of brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. And as we begin this journey of kind of beginning to understand what it means to really do life together in Christian community, I feel like where we need to begin today is with some repentance. I think maybe some of us need to repent of some of the demands that we've placed that our Christian community provide us with this program or that program to, for our enjoyment or the ways that we demand that our Christian community provide us with this experience or this assistance or the ways that we isolate ourselves from others so that we don't have to be burdened by other people's problems or their trials so that we can go on uh, kind of having the, the easy life that we want for ourselves. Or maybe we need to repent of the fact that we don't really share our struggles and fears with others so that we can kind of go on living the Christian life in the terms in which we define it instead of living it in mutual accountability and in desired meaningful discipleship with other people. And so in addition to repentance, I think there needs to dawn in each one of us a deep gratitude for what we've been given at Wellspring. I think we need to really plead with God. Lord, help us to really appreciate the brothers and sisters that we've been given here to share life with, the talented and faithful people that serve us each Sunday and throughout the week. And then finally, that gratitude has got to turn into kind of practical application. If we are grateful then we need to begin intentionally engaging and developing relationships with people on a deeper level or going out of our way to introduce ourselves to the person that's been coming to our church for years now that you've never taken the time to introduce yourself and meet or serve as a volunteer to create a great experience here for other people or continue giving financially or maybe begin giving financially so that we can continue to have this building and this staff which does so much for so many of us, and so that not only you can be blessed by what you experience here, but so that other people outside of our walls can also have some place to come someday. And I wonder what people are going to say when they walk through our doors. What's going to be the first thing that they notice? Is it going to be a oneness and that sense of, of kind of shared community, that complete unity that's going to make them kind of look around and say, what is it that's different about these people? What is it that makes them love each other and love me so deeply, even though I've just been here a few weeks? Who is this God that they serve that, that compels them to live like that? And so this morning as we close, I want to give you some, some time of silence to repent maybe of some things. Maybe you've had some ideal 
visions of what you want community to look like. And when it gets tough, maybe instead of sticking around, maybe you've bailed some other churches. Guys, this church isn't perfect. These people aren't perfect. But at some point, you've got to make a decision and commitment that I'm going to dig in, that this is going to be family, that I'm just not going to pick up and move uh, because it's, it's difficult or people are, are demanding of me. I also want you to spend some time just being grateful. You know, what have you got to be grateful about this place that we have that God's given us to come together? And then I'll close this in prayer. And I also want to challenge you this week. We mentioned it last week. We started a blog on our, on our website you can go to. And um, I'd love for this week people just to write in and just share things that they're grateful for. Uh, the Wellspring, ways in which it's, it's been uh, an important part of their life or the people have meant something to them. So take a couple minutes to just silence with God and just talk to Him. We just come to you this morning and we just, just repent, God, of um, the ways in which we've just brought our own ideals of what community should be like. We've laid those demands on this church or on other people. Lord, the ways in which we've kept ourselves isolated from others because it's easy for us. Father, we are just grateful. God, I'm grateful. Grateful for the people who believed in this vision from the very beginning to plant this church. Grateful for the staff and volunteers that serve here every week. Lord, grateful for people who have prayed for me and brought meals to me and provided for me. Lord Jesus, grateful for the lives that I've gotten to be a part of and the changes that I've seen, the radical transformation in families and marriages. Grateful for the children that I've seen born. Grateful for the people that we've baptized and into new life. God, help us. We're so lucky here. We don't even realize what we have. God, give us a sense of what it is that we have, God, so we can appreciate it more. Lord, as we come to worship you, um, what a privilege it is to be able to stand in the presence of hundreds of people and just all unite our voices in one common desire to give you the glory that you deserve. Jesus, move us towards oneness. Show us the things that need to change in us to make that possible. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and stand with us as we close today.